In the name of Jesus, amen. Jesus knew how his death would come about. He knew who it was who would betray him. He knew it was necessary, but still he mourned it even before it happened. The Son of Man is going to go as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Judas was close to Jesus. He had cast out demons in Jesus' name. He had preached the good news to many people. But now he chose money over Jesus. As we see, however, when he saw what he had done, he felt remorse, and that remorse led directly to his own death. We're also to feel remorse for our sins, but not a remorse that leads to death. Instead, Jesus would have us experience the repentance that leads to life, to look at our sin with repentant grieving. The difference is that Judas felt remorse without faith, but you are given faith to know that Jesus' passion is for you, and then to see how he brings life out of death. Why, after all, do we meditate on Jesus' passion at all? When we see our own hand in sending Jesus to the cross, when we see how our actions result in his being condemned, we're made to grieve, we're made to despair. And if that were it, we would be better off just enjoying life now, using the hedonistic motto of the world, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But we see something different. There is meaning given even in this place of darkest grieving. The difference is this between how the world views things and how we who have faith are given to view them. In fact, godly sorrow produces repentance, which leads to salvation, leaving no regret. On the other hand, worldly sorrow produces death. We can see in Judas an example of worldly sorrow, sorrow that is without repentance and sorrow which leads to death. And therefore we pray that God would grant us to view our Lord's passion with repentant grieving, godly sorrow, which leads to salvation and life. And that's because your Lord shows you his, in his gospel how he has paid for your sins. When Judas saw that Jesus was condemned, he felt remorse. And when you see your Lord condemned, you can feel the same remorse, but that remorse is tied to the knowledge that what he did, he did for you, out of his love, his suffering, and his death. While that is the result of your sin, he undertook as his work of love to save you. Without this repentance or faith, we can't bear Jesus' suffering. It's so hard we would want to turn away and pretend it's not happening. And that's our brains trying to protect us from trauma. And that's how Judas tried to act. But then, when we do that, we lose the benefit of Jesus' suffering. We lose his merits. This is why we train in meditation on Jesus' suffering. We practice. We look at it again and again, losing none of the agony of the cross, but especially seeing the great love of Jesus for us, forgiving all our sins, 
and the life that we gain as a result. But in this practice of meditation and repentance, being sorry enough doesn't enter into the equation at all. And making amends isn't part of the equation either. Judas tried to sate his own conscience when he said to the chief priests, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, and he tried to return the silver. He wasn't looking for the forgiveness of Jesus. He was looking for a way that he could reset to zero. Was he so different from Peter at this point? It's dangerous to speculate too far into men's hearts, but we can see that both Peter and Judas were made to see their own sin in the light. But Judas was convinced that there was no hope for him, and so he ended his own life. Peter despaired over his own sin as well, but he did not end his life. And whether that bespeaks some measure of faith that Peter had that Judas didn't, or some lack of motivation that Judas had, we're not told. All we're told is that Judas killed himself in the conviction that there was no hope for his sin, while Peter was later given forgiveness of his sin and life in Jesus. The law condemned Judas here. He saw his friend, his teacher, his Lord condemned to death as a direct result of his own actions. And you and I can see this too when we look at Jesus' passion, when we see him tied with cords. Those are our sins binding him. When we see him beaten and flogged, those are our sins whipping him. When we see him hanging on the cross, those are our sins that pierced him. But Judas had no ears for the gospel. The chief priests ought to have offered it. That was their job. They were his spiritual fathers, like pastors. Their duty was to offer sacrifices to depict the forgiveness of sins for the people. So let's put the best construction on Judas, as some commentators have done, and assume that he thought, in betraying Jesus, that Jesus would be able to escape that captivity just as he had escaped so many other times before. And so Judas maybe thought that Jesus would come out fine, and he himself would come out richer. Win-win. So assume this, that he sinned unintentionally, and then look at what the book of Leviticus prescribes. If any common person from the land sins by unintentionally violating any of the Lord's commands, by doing something that should not be done, and he then realizes his guilt, or the sin that he committed has been made known to him, he shall bring a female goat without blemish as his offering for the sin that he has committed. He shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and slaughter the sin offering at the place for the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar for burnt offerings. All the rest of his, its blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar. After he removes all its fat, just as the fat was removed from the sacrifice of the fellowship offering, the priest shall send it up in smoke on the altar as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. In this way, the priest shall make atonement for him so that he may be forgiven. Judas realized his guilt. And he went to the chief priests and he confessed. They should have told him, bring a goat. We will offer a sacrifice for you to make atonement and you will be forgiven. 
But that's not what they said, is it? What did they say? What is that to us? That's your problem. You see, for them to admit that what Judas had done was a sin and that they should offer atonement on his behalf would also be to admit that they had sinned and they were sinning and they should put a stop to Jesus' condemnation right then and there. And obviously they couldn't do that. So they also couldn't offer any forgiveness to Judas. Now, ironically, or through divine providence, Judas had already brought the lamb for sacrifice. And he had laid not his hand, but his lips upon this lamb, who was going to bear his guilt. And the blood of that lamb was soon going to be poured out on the ground of the hill of Golgotha. And the aroma of his death would ascend to God to make atonement for the whole world. Judas sadly rejected the forgiveness of that offering. But despite their intentions, God used the chief priests to make the sacrifice that atoned for all sins. It's obvious that God's hand was at work in all of this, bringing life out of death. See, all of our intentions are toward death. Sin corrupts us and fills us with the stench of death. But despite our best efforts to destroy ourselves, God even uses the wicked things in this world to work out for our good. He uses the things of death to bring about life. And this is proved by this account in what happens to the money. The chief priests took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put these into the treasury since it is blood money. They reached a decision to buy the potter's field with the money as a burial place for foreigners. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price the sons of Israel had set for him, and they gave them for the potter's field, just as the Lord commanded me. The prophet had recorded those words about 500 years prior. And many other prophecies about Jesus were fulfilled in his lifetime, and here is just another one that takes position among them. And it serves seemingly no purpose except to prove that God's hand was at work, that God had laid out this plan from eternity and was now carefully putting it into action. Paul wrote this comfort to the Romans. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Right here, we are given a glimpse into God's working. We're not often allowed to see how exactly things work out for our good. And frequently, when we guess at how they might, we're wrong. See, God might allow you to lose your job. And being an optimist, you might think that he did so in order to open up a new and better career opportunity for you. But what if you never get that new job? And that could happen with any sort of suffering. We just don't always know. We don't know why. We don't know what good will come of it. But sometimes God does peel back the curtain just a fraction to show us a corner of the perfect tapestry of his plan that he is weaving. This idea was used by the author J.R.R. Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings. It was only at the end of everything 
that Frodo, who had just seen the great evil and corrupting ring destroyed and the powerful enemy Sauron defeated, that he looked and said to his friend Sam, but do you remember Gandalf's words? Even Gollum may have yet something to do. But for him, Sam, I could not have destroyed the ring. The quest would have been in vain, even at the bitter end. So you see that selfish creature, Gollum, was a thorn in the side of the heroes for much of their adventure, and several hoped to just kill him and be done with it. But the wizard Gandalf told them to hold off, that there might yet be some purpose for the creature. And that rang true in the end. Frodo had been so corrupted by the ring that he would have tried to keep it and ultimately would have brought it straight back to its master, if not for Gollum, who by his own selfishness fought to get it back and thereby destroyed both himself and the ring in the process. Now there's an epic scale example of how bad things work out for good. Our own glimpses might not have that great scale, we are given a few more examples in scripture. For example, Mordecai told his cousin Esther what he thought might possibly be part of God's plan, saying, who knows whether you have become queen for a time like this. And he turned out to be right. God put Esther in a position of power so that she could save the Jewish people. Paul also guessed at a glimpse behind God's plan in a letter to a fellow Christian, Philemon. Philemon's slave Onesimus had run away, and Paul had encountered him, preached the gospel to him, and converted him to Christianity. And then he sent the slave Onesimus back with a letter in which he said, among other things, perhaps this is why he was separated you from you for a while, so that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but as more than a slave, as a dear brother. He certainly is dear to me but he is even more of a dear brother to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And we might guess at things too, and we might not always be right, but what is always certain is this, that God intends the death and the pain experienced now, the sins that are undertaken in this valley of death to ultimately lead to life. God brings us out of death. He uses all of these enemy chess pieces to orchestrate his own perfect checkmate. We see the greatest design of all this in the suffering of Jesus. There explicitly death was used to bring out life. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Things seen and unseen, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and all things hold together in him. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in all things he might have the highest rank. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And so in our meditation upon the cross of Christ, the, seeing the purpose behind it leads us to this repentance. We grieve over our sins, we confess those sins, but not without hope. 
because we see the payment that was done to give us life. We seek to keep from sinning, although we know and we grieve in the knowledge that we will sin again and again. But, again, we're comforted by the blood of Jesus, shed to cleanse us even from those great sins. So you can take comfort in this. Every day, every hour, you are forgiven. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, forevermore. Amen.